Today's reading is Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're in a series this summer called The Short Stories of Jesus, in which we're looking at the parables that Jesus told often when Jesus wanted to teach or wanted his disciples or listeners to understand something. He told them stories, because that is what Jesus is like. He's not so keen on just saying, okay, well, here's a three-point thing that I want you to take and go with. Instead, he tells a story that offers up multiple possibilities of what he might be wanting to say and what he means. And it's therefore the job of a parable to invite us into its story so that we might see God afresh, and in light of who God is, we might see ourselves afresh. And that is why it is so important that our conversation, our understanding of the parables doesn't end after the next 25 minutes, as if what I say or anyone else up here says is the final word, because it is not. We're simply wanting to foster a conversation where we're wanting to hear from God. And the parables, I believe, do that and invite all of us to participate. And it's been fun, and it's been really confusing and odd to think about what Jesus is wanting to say. And in particular, this morning's parable is is one of those that that I find interesting in terms of of how it's laid out. Because Luke, Luke 18, and if you'd like, you can turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We'll be there for most of the morning. So at the beginning of Luke 18, Jesus sort of plays his hand a little bit. And this parable is is unique in in the fact that Jesus says, here is why I am telling you this parable. Which is different from other parables where Jesus will tell a story And sometimes or often, there is no explanation. But Jesus provides one in verse 1. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So right away, we're told that this parable is being told by Jesus as a way to push people to pray and to not lose heart, which immediately causes pause. Because as a reader, I have to imagine or think about myself 
in my own life of prayer. And I have to ask the question, do I pray? Because it seems to be suggested here that to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be one who prays. And who prays always. And that within the life of prayer, it's possible that we might lose heart. So that's a question I ask you. Do you pray? How do you pray? What does your life of prayer look like? Is it something you do? Is it something you enjoy doing? Is it something you can't stand to do? Is it something you haven't done in a very long time? Right away, the parable, as it begins, forces us to ask such questions. But is Jesus just wanting to tell a parable about prayer because that's who Jesus is, walking around always praying with his hands folded, as if he wasn't an actual human being who lived life? No, he's not just simply talking about prayer because it's something nice to talk about, but there's a context within which he's wanting to have this conversation. And it begins in chapter 17, starting in verse 20. So the Pharisees asked Jesus in 1720, you know, what is the kingdom of God like? Or when will the kingdom of God be here? Or where is the kingdom of God? They are wanting to know what this thing is that Jesus himself has been talking about. And Jesus says, it's not something that you can pinpoint as if to say, well, look, it's over there. Or look, it's over here. But he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's as if to say that Jesus himself is the embodiment of God's kingdom. And that because he is present, there the kingdom of God is. But because it's not what they expected, they are missing out on what the kingdom of God is and what it means. Because the kingdom of God means that heaven has touched earth in the person of Jesus, and so therefore the blind can see And the captives are released, and the oppressed are lifted up, and the lame walk. And we see in the Gospels story after story of this taking place. But then Jesus pulls the disciples aside. And he begins to tell the disciples, look, there's going to come a time when you will want to see the kingdom of God, but it will be hard to see. And Jesus is speaking of what will eventually happen to him. He will be arrested and crucified. And the disciples will be wondering what happened to the thing that we have put our trust in. It will be hard to see the good news of the arrival of Jesus and the kingdom that he has proclaimed through all the fog of darkness and tragedy. Because there is this reality of the kingdom that isn't already and not yet. It has come in the person of Jesus, but it hasn't fully come. If that's true of our world, we live in a world where the blind can see, yet there are those who remain blind. We live in a world where the sick are healed, yet cancer ravages the bodies of those we love. We live in a world where the oppressed are lifted up and the poor are given hope, yet there are millions in the world today who may not find a meal. We live in a world 
where those who are held captive are set free. Yet the addicted might take one more hit or the alcoholic one more drink. We live in a world where resurrection life has been a reality in the person of Jesus. Yet every day, bodies are lowered into the ground. And so it is in this context that Jesus offers a parable to his disciples so that they might always pray and not lose heart. And it's fascinating that Jesus is going to tell a parable that has to do with prayer that contains no praying at all. And you have to ask yourself that question. Okay, well, if this is a parable about prayer that doesn't actually contain prayer, then is it a parable about how we're supposed to pray? Is it a parable primarily about the people or the person, in this case, the widow, who is praying? Is it a parable about the one to whom we are praying? All valid questions, and in some ways I think all of those would be potential paths of following and finding meaning. But this morning, can't look at possibly all of those. So I want to look at the parable and offer a suggestion, of perhaps, of what, is, what Jesus is wanting to first do, perhaps primarily do, through this parable. So there are two characters, which you already heard the text read. There's a widow. Now, in the first century, a widow is one who is oppressed. If you look at the Old Testament or if you look at Scripture, it is an archetype of someone who is constantly oppressed by others or someone that the people of God are to be looking out for. So all of a sudden, the hearers are listening to Jesus' parable. They hear there is a widow in a certain city. And so there's this picture that comes to their mind of someone who is oppressed and who they remember, Old Testament-wise, there's always been, always been said that God will lift up the widow and the fatherless, that the people of God are to take care of those who are widows and orphans. So widows have played throughout the story of Scripture some prominent actions within the story. But we're not sure what exactly the offense is. We know that there's an opponent and and she wants justice, but we're not sure why. Perhaps in this case, you know, her husband obviously died. And because of that, there was a threat that everything she owned was going to be taken away and given to her husband's family. Perhaps someone was wanting to get what she had. And so she's coming to this judge to plead her case for justice. But then we're told about this judge who enters, and there's this, there's, this other, there's this other character, and we're told twice within the story that he is a judge who neither feared man nor respected, neither feared God nor respected man. Twice we are told that about the judge. He neither feared people, or sorry, feared God or respected man. And that's twice that we are told that. And so then the action of the story begins and we see this widow coming to this judge and she's pleading her case and this judge, who don't forget, because of these two things about him, reminds you that he is actually breaking the two most important commandments that Jesus himself has already suggested to be the most significant ones, to love God and to love neighbor. So this is a judge who neither loves God nor loves neighbor. 
And this widow keeps coming to him and berating him and annoying him. And then over time, it says, okay, well, I, I don't respect God and I don't like people, but I will give in because I don't want her to keep coming to me and beat me down. Which is actually more colorful in the Greek because it actually suggests physical harm on the part of the widow. That she might punch him, give him a swollen lip, a black eye, and you know, there is no judge in the first century who wants to walk around with a black eye or a swollen lip having to explain that that was from a woman. So he relents, and he gives in, and he gives her the justice that the widow desires. And the parable ends. But then Jesus wants to make sure that that there is something that we're keeping in mind. If you turn to verse 6, he says this, Luke 18, 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Jesus, at the end of the parable, wants to draw the reader's or listener's attention to the judge and to the contrast of the judge to God. That is first what Jesus is wanting to do. So perhaps at his very core, it's not so much a parable about how to pray, but about how to think about the one to whom we're praying. Because who we're praying to makes all the difference in the world of how we're going to pray. And so that is my question to you, is to what God do you pray? And maybe you flip that around. The way you pray will tell you what God you believe in. So to what God are you praying? If we think about the judge, is it a God who looks like the judge? Are you praying to a God who seems uncaring, annoyed, absolutely distant? And I'd venture to say, I mean, in a room this size with all of these people, absolutely. Those ideas and understandings of God are represented here right now. That when you pray and you think of God being distant, your prayers aren't so much thinking of this loving Father who wants to hear and listen to you, but almost someone that you're trying to like wrangle and pull and convince. And, and, it, and it's a prayer that will eventually lose heart. Or are you praying to a God who is at first annoyed with you? When you think about God and you're praying, you come not boldly but with trepidation because God reminds you perhaps of the father that you had that whenever you messed up would never let you forget that you did so. Or maybe it reminds you of that friend who is constantly reminding you of how frustrated they are with you or how annoyed they feel with you that your words don't mean much. Is that the type of God to whom you're praying? Or is it a God who is like 
an opponent? Are you praying to a God who is a God who seems to be getting in the way of the life you want to live? And so your prayers in many ways look like a fight. A fight not with someone, a covenant partner who actually cares and will be there, but a fight with someone who you believe doesn't care at all and actually just wants to get in the way of your happiness. Is that the God to whom you're praying? Because Jesus suggests a picture of God in contrast to the judge, primarily as a God who first hears. See, Jesus' mind and the mind of the disciples, if he thinks, he's thinking of a God who is the God of the Exodus, who led his people out of captivity, who parted the Red Seas, who gave them food when they needed it, and who took care of them over and over. And all of those things started because God was first a God who heard. If you want, you can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. I mean, this last verse is remarkable. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And it is this prayer, it is is these cries that actually pushes the narrative of the Exodus story forward. If you think about this text in contrast to what we see between the widow and the judge, it couldn't be more different. A God who hears the cries and the groanings of his people, a God who knows and remembers his covenant. And because that is true, there is the possibility of something new happening. So God is a God who hears, not first a God who is frustrated, not at all a God who is annoyed, not in any way a God who is distant, but a God who hears the cries of his people and will give them justice, as Jesus says in Luke 18. C.S. Lewis says this, to think of our prayers as simply causes would suggest that the whole importance of petitionary prayer lay in the achievement of the thing asked for. But really, for our spiritual life as a whole, the being taken into account or considered matters more than the being granted. 
Religious people don't talk about the results of prayer. They talk of its being answered or heard. We can bear to be refused, but not to be ignored. Let me read that again. We can bear to be refused, but not to be ignored. And then he finishes by saying, in other words, our faith can survive many refusals if they really are refusals and not mere disregards. The apparent stone will be bread to us if we believe that a father's hand put it into ours in mercy or in justice or even in rebuke. We pray to a God who hears. And as Jesus is telling this parable and as he contrasts God with the judge, he's wanting his disciples to remember that you are praying to a God who is a God of the Exodus, a God who is actually embarking on a new Exodus through Jesus. It is a God who is, has come, and you are praying to a God who will come again. That is the God to whom we're praying. I mean, and certainly, I don't want to overlook the tensions in this passage that there are with regard to prayer. I mean, Jesus talks about that God will give justice and he will give it, give it speedily. And those are tensions. I don't know in terms of how to think about God and his idea of time and what that means. Because certainly the people of Israel were in captivity for a very long time before God gave justice. So I don't want to overlook those tensions. But I still think that first, primarily... Jesus is wanting us to know that the God to whom we're praying is a God who hears and a God who listens and a God who cares. And then something interesting happens at the end of this parable in Jesus' explanation of it. In verse 8, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? What do you do with that question? You have this parable about prayer, this contrast between judge and God, and then at the end he puts in this question linking prayer to faith, perhaps better rendered faithfulness or living faithfully, not just this idea of having some belief in something, but actually an outworking of life. It kind of backs up the belief you say you have. Somehow prayer is connected to living faithfully. Now why is that? Why is that a marker to Jesus of living faithfully? I mean, I think it has something to do with you are always reminded when you are praying of who God has been. And that means there's always a possibility of who God might be in a situation. And it's in our act of praying that we become and remain faithful because we are always engaging the one who can make things new. Abraham Joshua Heschel says this, To live without prayer is to live without God. To pray means to bring God back into the world. 
to establish his kingship, to let his glory prevail. I love that picture because so often it's so easy to live life keeping God outside of the world or outside of our own worlds and stories. And to pray is to bring God back in to that world. And I think the opposite is true. Or maybe to think of it in a different way. To pray allows God to bring us into his world. To pray is to allow God to pull us into his way of seeing things, into his way of thinking, where all of a sudden our desires, the things we want, the things we long for, are the things that God himself wants and desires and longs for. Our imaginations begin to be reshaped and formed by our prayers. Richard Beck says that that prayer is not a tool, but it's an identity. Brian Zahn, a pastor in Missouri, says, the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what you want him to do, but to be properly formed. We are formed as Christians as we pray Christian prayers. See, to pray is to allow Jesus to recover our heart and our minds. It's to allow him to show us who he wants us to be. It's to pray so that we are reminded who, of who God is and what he cares about and that he cares about us, his people. And to pray is to be formed. And now if that's true, if prayer is formation, then what we pray is important. If we are formed by what we pray, then what we pray is important. Which is why I think Jesus provides a way to pray. Because it is in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus wants us to be formed in that way as we pray. It's so easy, I think, at least personally, at least I've heard this, in a sermon to say, go, go pray more. That's the application, right? I hope that you're all encouraged to go pray. But then I'm often left wondering, well, what, how, what does that look like? How am I supposed to do that? What does it even mean to pray? What, is it, what words am I supposed to say? Well, I'd like to offer you some ways in which I've been formed by prayer, particularly through Scripture. Now, this isn't a definitive list. This is my list. As I was thinking about what are prayers that have actually shaped me over the last probably four months of my life, this is what I'm putting up there. These are prayers that I've thought through, that I've actually prayed, that I've spent time with. And so I offer them to you as an example, and there are many more prayers in Scripture that you can pray. So generally, of course, we can begin with the Psalms, right, which are the prayers that the people of God prayed. And if you read the Psalms, you'll see that in the Psalms there's a, whole, there's a full range of human emotion in there. And it teaches us how to praise, it teaches us how to lament, it teaches us how to petition, it teaches us how to confess. We are given ways to pray in the Psalms. And often we think that we are to come up with the words that we need to say to pray to God, but we actually perhaps need to be in a school of prayer 
in order to come to a place where we know how to pray. The Psalms, I would argue, might be for you that school. The Lord's Prayer. Jesus provides for us in two different places a prayer that he wants his disciples to pray when they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, here you go. That's something that we should take note of. And it's not just something that we should memorize and know off the top of our head, but what might it look like to actually spend our mornings, our days, going through this prayer and letting it form us? Not thinking that we're praying this prayer as some sort of magic trick to get things that we feel like we want, but we're actually praying this prayer to be formed. Then certainly there are are many prayers that Paul has given to us, and here are three primary ones that have been significant for me Because if I, here's the Apostle Paul praying, I might suggest that the Apostle Paul would be one whom we want to listen to in terms of what we might concern ourselves with in terms of prayer. And so here are a few things, here are a few tracks to run on in terms of helping you pray and be formed by prayer. But again, the biggest barrier, I think, to prayer is not the words but our understanding of God. And that is what Jesus is wanting to address. And that is something that we need to have addressed because we live in a world of the already, not yet, in which we pray, and it's so easy to lose heart because it's hard to look through all of the things in our life that speak contrary to the kingdom of God as being a reality currently. But as we pray, perhaps we might be people who end up seeing more people who notice more, people whose, whose faith is lifted up and strengthened. We become people who are able to strengthen the faith of others. We become people who are able to help one another remain faithful and not lose heart. I want to close with a story from the novel Silence by a Japanese author named Shusaku Endo. And the book... The book is about two Portuguese Jesuit priests who traveled to Japan in the 17th century to investigate the supposed apostatizing of another priest. So you have Father Garp and you have Father Rodriguez and and they, they take this boat to Japan. And it's during this time in which all of the Christians in Japan all of the missionaries in Japan are being persecuted. At one point, Father Rodriguez and Father Garp are actually separated, and so it follows Rodriguez. And and it's hard for Rodriguez to come to terms with what he sees, what he knows to be true about God, and what he sees happening to the people around him. Hence the title, Silence. How, God, can you remain silent when your children are being drowned or burned or stabbed or starved for your name's sake? There's this one moment when when Rodriguez is actually standing on the ship because he's been... um, He's been betrayed by, by someone, and, and I'm not giving anything away. You should still read it. So he's betrayed by someone, and, and he's on this ship, and he looks across the sea, 
And he, in the way that it's described is you just see the waters and, and things in the water just floating. And he says that he throws out a prayer to God. And then there's this deafening silence of the sea that is just so much like the supposed silence of God. And how does he reconcile that? And it seems as if, and from things that he says, that he's beginning to lose his faith. This missionary who came to be God's presence to these other persecuted Christians is finding it difficult to trust in the God who he believes sent him. And so he's taken to this village and he begins to be interrogated and he's in this cell and, it's, and in this prison and it says it's really dark. And, and all this time he's praying and he's asking God to, to speak, to do something. Because he knows that he is going to be killed. Well, over time, other peasants are captured and they, be, they, they, are, they are brought to the same village and they are also imprisoned. And then they are in this dark cell next to one another. And then all of a sudden, he hears these prayers rise up from this other cell. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer to pray in the darkness of prison. And it says that Father Rodriguez, with his arms folded, barely able to keep his eyes open, in the midst of that prayer, he begins to move his lips in unison with theirs. And then, the next day, it's as if he has some sort of faith within him strengthened again, and he begins to do what missionaries are to do, what those who are in his vocation are supposed to do, which is to provide care and to be God's presence. And so he begins to visit these peasants. And he begins to be a voice of hope for them. And he's looking at this woman, a beggar, her teeth all decayed and yellow. And he begins to pray with these peasants, and he prays this from Psalm 146, Put not your trust in princes in the children of men, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit shall go forth, and he shall return into his earth. In that day all their thoughts shall perish. Blessed is he who has the God of Jacob for his helper, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. When they, Father Rodriguez and these peasants, aren't able to know how to pray or to have faith, they begin to rely on the prayers that they know. And it begins to foster within them new faith. And he looks, this one woman in particular, and he says to her, you will not meet with greater suffering than this. And he said this in a voice filled with earnest fervor. He says, the Lord will not abandon you forever. 
He it is who washes our wounds. His is the hand that wipes away our blood. The Lord will not be silent forever. Thanks be to the God who hears our prayers.